Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Industry Podcast, Episode 6. If it's your first time, this is the podcast where I interview influential people from stand-up, comedy, writing, radio, TV, and today, reviewing. We've got Bruce Dezu on. Before I tell you about today's guest, I just want to thank you all for leaving some more reviews. It's really helpful and it really uh, assists the show. Also, I want to thank you for sharing the show. I've noticed a lot of people tweeting about it which is really helpful uh, and sort of spreads the word about it more. So please continue to do that. Uh, And also thank you for the donations. That's really helpful. I've got a couple of pounds coming in from that, which is really lovely. If you'd like to give a donation, just a quid or something, uh, there's a PayPal button on the website. I should just tell you all now, I'm working on a set of mini podcasts. I don't know what I'm going to call them. But they're going to be 20 to 30 minutes long with four very talented and, I'm going to say, influential people involved in the designing of posters, flyers and brochures and programmes at different fringe festivals as well as shows in and around the capital. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, And if you have any questions you want to ask them, please email me as quickly as possible because we're doing those on the fly in the next couple of days. Uh, that is simon.m.kane at gmail.com. Guests include uh, Sean Brightman, who has uh, created the PBH Fringe brochure program for a number of years and is now working on the Fruistival, um version or side of that. Mark Burrows, who has designed loads of posters for award-winning shows, uh, as well as he's a musician, so he's done it for music shows as well as comedy, so we'll be talking about that. Adil Sukan who has designed nearly 300 posters and is not only a Photoshop wizard, is a photographer as well. So we'll be talking about the merits of having photographs versus illustrations on posters and what to expect from her work. And Adam Robinson, who is a senior graphic designer and has worked for over a decade in the entertainment and marketing agency Media Junction. Uh, He's obviously designed hundreds of posters as well. And we're going to talk to all of them about what you should go with, whether you should go with like an idea or a concept, whether you should invite the them down to a show, because is it worth them seeing it to get like a feel for it, to design it, or can they do it from a description? Should you go with a concept, an idea, um, or because we all know that you've got to 
book the fringe before most of us have written the show so as a result what should you take to a designer because obviously without finishing a show how are you going to publicize how are you going to promote it it's very hard for them it's very hard for us it's going to be great to bridge that gap hopefully if you'd like that please subscribe it's going to be a really useful set of tutorials i hope um if you'd like to follow this podcast as always the notes are at rcindustrypodcast.tumblr.com Today's guest is Bruce Desu, who is the reviewer for the London Evening Standard. He's also the art critic there, um, so he has a wide range of reviewing skills. Uh, so he basically covers comedy as well as like theatre and has previously covered music, and we talked about pretty much all those three things. He also runs beyondthejoke.co.uk, which is his news site for comedy and the industry in general. It's like another chortle or comedy.co.uk. And if you haven't checked it out, it's a very nice read, and it's a uh, it's a great it's got like some great opinion pieces on there, so it's worth checking out anyway. We covered a host of topics, and I think this podcast will most benefit people who are looking at going to do a fringe show or looking at doing previews in London and getting reviews for it. We covered how that works in terms of getting people down, contacting the London Evening Standard specifically, but also the other papers and publications that he's worked for in his time as a freelance reviewer. We also looked at what the stars actually mean from a reviewer's perspective. Um, We talked about how the star rating systems aren't actually that useful and um, the fact that they they can't give away that many five stars. So it might be that you got a five star review, but they could only give you four. Um, And this has got loads of insider information. I really enjoyed chatting to him. Um, Honestly, we, we were meant to talk for about an hour and we were at, I was around his house for about four hours, um, although this is edited down to about an hour and a half. Without any more delays, here is Bruce. Yeah, um, just to put it on the record, the definitive version. Yeah, I, Stuart Lee, it was when I think his book The Perfect Fall came out, which is about 2001 now. Um, Avalon, his publishers, publicists, well, they asked me if I'd like to interview him. And at that stage, obviously, Stuart Lee, I think, was going through one of his not very popular phases, uh, you know, goes in and out of fashion. And I thought, no one's, who would want it to, who would want an interview? Who'd want to read an interview with this chancer, Stuart Lee? But, you know, I thought, well, it doesn't do any harm. I'll, I'll pitch it to the evening. I was freelance then. I thought, well, I'll pitch it to the evening standard, see what they say. And as luck would have it, they, they weren't remotely interested in an interview with Stuart Lee. But they were quite interested in in having me on board as a as a comedy critic, so so thanks to Stuart Lee, I sort of got my break in comedy criticism. And at the time you were freelancing, so you were just pitching for work as a reviewer. Yeah, I'd been at Time Out uh, as a as a more of a TV. I wrote about comedy, but more TV comedy, and then I'd gone freelance. And uh, yeah, so I just had a brief period of freelance, and very luckily. Sort of, I mean, I, I was still freelance as a, as a comedy critic, but, but I was on contract, so I knew I'd have regular work. Okay. I've got a few questions about freelancing in terms... I mean, because you don't really freelance anymore. You're, you're full-time at the London... No, no, I'm still... It hasn't changed. It oh, hasn't okay. changed since, like, 2001. 
Um, um, exactly the same as we speak, as of this moment. I don't know what it will be like by the time this goes out. <laughs> but as we, at this very moment, no, my situation hasn't changed at all. Okay. So when it comes to someone else freelancing, pitching uh, an article, because you, you edit the, or you, you're involved in the arts section of the London Evening Standard, would they need to go direct to you or do they, do they go to like a general email, editorial email, or how does editorial work. You mean like a comedy idea? Yeah, a comedy or idea, or, or if they've got like a tip-off for something they want to get coverage on for their own shows, or if they just want to write for... Right, the various different things you're asking me. If okay. it was a, um, I'm, I, as I said, I'm freelance, and I work... I don't go into the office very often. I don't really have anything to do with the production of the paper. I, you know, the extent of my co- contact with the paper is I put together a diary of what's coming up in comedy, and I'm talking about live comedy now, uh, so the month ahead shows that I think we should review, and it always depends on how much space they've got, whether we review them. So I give them the diary, they give me a call on the day to let me know whether they've got space to review it, so that's sort of the extent. There isn't sort of such a, well, the newspaper is obviously edited, um, but I'm not, my role isn't as an editor. Um, you know, there's a there's an editing team that does that at the paper. Um, if someone was a performer and they wanted to get covered in the standard, then they should come to me because okay. I'm sort of would be in that sense I'd be the conduit for any any comedy stuff, and I would sort of make some kind of decision about you know whether the, what they were doing would be interesting. And this is you know again to say to talk about something like Edinburgh. Obviously, that's when everyone comes to me in the run-up to Edinburgh, when it, whether it's in, in comedians in their own right, or publicists, or management, or anyone, really. They'll come to me, you know, because I'm sort of covering... I'm the person covering it. Um, does that answer your question? It does, yeah. <laughs> and, what, and what are you... Because obviously you can't put forward every show that's happening. What are you actually looking for in terms of that schedule that goes for the... For the London Evening Standard and then also for Edinburgh. Yeah, I mean, also because I do write... And the other thing is, obviously, I write for other people. So when people are telling me what they're doing, Mm. I might think, well, that's that's right for so-and-so, but not right for the Standard, or or it's it's not right for anyone, or it's right for everyone, and I'll see who's who's interested in it. Um, But what am I looking for is, I'm afraid, one of those questions that's going to crop up where I have to say, I don't really know the answer. You only really know the answer when, you know, something interesting and something different. I mean, at the standard, yeah, I mean, I think the standard always likes to be first with things, always likes to have exclusives, always likes to have different stories. Um, Whereas sometimes other papers would be just, you know, would be happy to run something just if it's a terrific show. You know, we're obviously talking about the more established performers now. Um... But everyone, I mean, as a rule, though, I mean, these days, all newspapers, because it's so competitive, everyone sort of wants to be the first to cover something, which which can work in newer comedians' favour, in a way, because it means that, um, you, you know, something new, no one will know about, so you might come along and it, you know, it might just be a show that catches catches my interest or catches the editor's interest. For a, quir- for a quirky reason. And they might go, oh, that's new, I've not heard about that. You know, that sounds... It, you know, we don't... One thing on the standard, we don't only cover, um, you know, big... We don't only cover the, you know, Michael McIntyres and the, and the John Bishops and whatever, the, the arena, the O2 arena people. Uh, you know, it was the editor, you know, I was chatting to the editor and 
we decided to do a big feature on Jade Adams. Uh, well, in fact, when she won the Funny Women Awards, but in fact, this was just before the awards, we said, well, let's do an interview with the winner. If we can get an exclusive, let's do an interview with the winner, not knowing at the time who the winner was. And Jade was you know, a fantastic personality, and it was a fantastic interview. So, you know, we ran a really big piece on someone who was completely unknown. And um, ever since that piece, whenever something crops up in the, anywhere else about Jade, it always says something like the funniest woman in Britain, which I don't think winning funny women actually means you're the funniest woman in Britain, does it? No. But, you know, it's kind of, you know, that's, you know, when other papers sort of, kind of by a Chinese whispers process, that's what it turns into. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, don't give up hope because anything can get... Anything that's any good or interesting has a chance of being covered. So, you covered Jade uh, because of the Funny Women competition. Yeah, and because she won it. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, how valuable are competition credits in terms of helping get more notice from publications or well, from you? I think in that example, that's a good point to say. Yeah, from in terms of getting coverage, very important because by running it, very you know, I interviewed her the day after she'd won it. The piece ran, you know, at the end of that week. So it wasn't just a profile of someone who was doing it, you know, who had gigs coming up. It actually also was a news, you know, it was a news story because she was the winner, you know, all those journalistic questions of how does it feel having just won the award, that sort of thing. You know, if you can win something like that, you know, it's uh, it's a shame. You know, last night was the was the was the Natty's N A T Y S awards, and it's it's the same thing. If we had space. Um, you know, maybe we could have done something on, on the winner of that. If we, you know, if we can do it quickly and we can do it exclusive, you know, we can, and then we'll do a big, you know, we'll do big pieces, which I think in the past Time Out would have done. I don't know if Time Out does it quite so much now because, like everyone, they're also a bit squeezed for space. What about online space, though? Like, if you, would you ever, do you do more coverage for that kind of thing online? Because obviously there's no limit in terms of how many times you can publish something online. No, but there's a limit to the budget, and I have to sort of be paid for what I do. So this, this, for the Evening Standard, you know, it's the newspaper. Anything that goes online that I write is is ninety nine percent of it anyway. Are things that have been in the paper? We can't we can't just go. Oh, we'd like to do that, but there's no room in the paper, so let let's put it online. Also, I mean, the Standard, you know, is still very much a, as much as it's you know got an online presence, it's also still a newspaper and. Uh, Sometimes, you know, it has to bear those two factors in mind. So, is the um, editorial... Because you obviously, you run beyondthejoke.co.uk and if you wanted coverage in that, what's the... Is it, obviously, you edit that, so, I mean, you are the person that everyone would go straight to. Is is there a different process for that than for, say, like, the, the big newspaper? Yeah. What's my website called? It's called Beyond the Joke. Beyond the Joke. Not... Beyond the Joke. Sorry. Yeah, I wrote a book called Beyond the Joke, and that, sorry, that domain name was already taken. So I had to, I had to call the website Beyond. The book was called. Uh, it's the Beyond book was called the Beyond the Joke. Yes. And the website's called Beyond the Joke. Yes. I'm not trying to keep plugging it. I'm just trying to get it right. <laughs> it's um, okay. Well, it's a different story to the extent that I run that, so I am totally in control of it. Uh, it's not about being paid, it's about how much time I've got, really. Um, you know, I pretty much write, although I'm expanding as we speak, there are major expansion plans afoot, um, I pretty much write, again, write, I write sort of 90% of the copy, 95% of the copy, 
So it's more a case of how much time I've got. And interviews are very time-consuming, um, which is why one of the things I do, which I'm sort of quite pleased with, is my section called Rarely Asked Questions. Uh, where Because it's more of a questionnaire, it's pretty straightforward that I can send out questions. It's the same questions every week. So, and, uh, you know, so comedians can answer that and I can get it back and I pretty much cut and paste it and put it in with their spelling mistakes, with their bad grammar. You know, I don't clean it up because you want, to get a, you want to get a sense of who they are. And sometimes when you read a piece in the newspaper, all the ums and ahs and ers and repetitions get cut out to make it a smooth read. But with this, it's only a short piece. It's sort of one page on, on my website. So I try and do it exactly as they've done it. Um, and that's, just to, just, to, just to go back to what you were saying, that sort of works both ways. Sometimes they'll come to me and offer me things. Sometimes I'll ask them. I'll approach people. I don't approach people that often, but last week, because Holly Byrne had that Victoria Beckham thing that went quite viral, and also because it was about asking questions, the actual Victoria Beckham mm. thing was about 73 questions, I thought oh, it'd be quite fun to ask Holly Byrne some questions. So I, went, I, I asked Holly Byrne to do that. Probably more times it's people coming to me and, and asking me if I'll do it, or you know, asking me if I'll interview enough. Or they'll say, would you like to interview so-and-so? And I say, well, I haven't got time to do a full interview, but if they want to complete the rarely asked questions, we can give them some coverage and a plug that way. You, uh, you've also got the opinion section on that website. Yeah. Uh, you recently had like Tom Ward on about you know not doing competitions again yeah. and all that stuff. Is that uh, kind of like a chore of correspondence that where people send stuff in, or are you approaching people for that? Or it's again, it's predominantly me writing it. So it's but because of my um, major expansion plans, which are afoot, um, I just I when things well actually it's a combination. Some people have approached me, um, other people, but. Other people, I've seen someone's written something on Facebook, like that Tom Ward yeah, thing, for instance. Tom Ward wrote after the after he'd done his last, after he did the Piccadilly Comedy Club competition, he said he didn't want to do competition, he wouldn't do competitions anymore. I thought, well, that's interesting, because uh, as we've sort of touched on already, competi- I think competitions are very important for sort of getting a foothold and working up the ladder, however you want to describe it. Uh, so I, I said, would you be interested in writing something? And he did. It wasn't quite what I expected him to write, but it was a good piece. Yeah. I thought it was a very good piece. It wasn't quite... And again, I try and give... You know, as long as it's not libelous or anything, you know, they're not really being paid, so I have to give them a certain amount of editorial freedom to write what they want to write. Um, but yeah, yeah, I suppose it's a bit like... I hadn't thought of that. Yes, I suppose it is a little bit like what Chortle do. I hadn't really thought about that. It's, it's Because it started off... Because actually what I do that Chortle doesn't really do, although Steve does it occasionally, is, you know, because I am a journalist, I write the opinion, I, you know, I write opinion pieces that kind of comes naturally to me to write proper journalistic pieces. And that's how that opinion section started. But then it kind of, yes, I thought other, other people have got interesting things to say. Um, get in touch with me, I'm happy to uh, consider other ideas. And the best way of doing that is email? Yeah, the email's on the website, but if you What's it called again? Beyond the Joke. Beyond the Joke. So if you go to Beyond the Joke, if you Google Beyond the Joke, uh, 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 I think there is another book called Beyond the Joke, so sometimes other things come up. But usually if you put Beyond the Joke in, the website should come up. And if you go to the About page, I think it's called, or the Contact page, there's an email address on there. But I'm on Twitter as well, of course. Um, at My Twitter name is actually at Bruce Des, D-E, Bruce D-E-S. And of course I'm on Facebook as well. So 
there used to be a time, you know, that's the thing, it's funny when people say, how do I contact so-and-so? Because it's, how can you not contact so-and-so? It's pretty, you know, in the old days it used to be, oh, what's so-and-so's phone number? And, you know, you, phone numbers of journalists were a carefully guarded secret. But these days it's so easy. You know, I do it myself when I need to, con- you know, like with Tom Ward, you know, to ask him to do that piece. I'd seen him write something on Facebook, so I just messaged him on Facebook. And he got straight back to me. So it's... Yeah, I'm happy to be contacted anyway, any, any, by any method. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's um, everyone's become quite open up now yeah. in the industry, and it's um, yeah. it's changed a lot. I mean, how, uh, what stock do you put in social media in terms of your? Because you've built quite a big audience for Beyond the Joke. Mm. How has social media helped you build your own audience in quite a competitive market of writing for comedy? Do you mean with comedy websites? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know how, you know, things like Chortle and I guess British Comedy Guide are the two yeah. biggest ones. I kind of don't know how they did it before social media. You know, they both sort of predate, I don't know whether maybe Bebo or MySpace in back then helped them or Friends Reunited or something. But yeah, I don't know how they did, they, they, they did start out. I mean, obviously it takes, it, I, I think that's the difference. I think what, what, what took them... This is just figures off the top of my head, um, you know. But what might have taken them five years, maybe I got to that level in six months or th- even three months because, you know, if I wrote an opinion piece, I'd, I'd tweet it and that would get it circulated, you know, firstly amongst people that follow me on Twitter and then they would retweet it so it would sort of fan out and likewise putting pieces on my Facebook page would get it out. And the idea of, you know, when those websites started, I'm not quite sure... They just put a piece up and hoped people would sort of stumble upon them back then. You know, they're both, they're both about, I mean, Chortle's about 12 years old, isn't it? 12, yeah. 13, and I guess, how old's British Comedy Guide? That's le- it's younger. Yeah. I can't remember how old, though. Yeah. I was talking to Mark the other day. Yeah. Because um, he's expanding his website as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, how, do you think they, how do you think they got... I don't um, know. I, I work in social media in my day job. So right. for me, social media in particular is fascinating in terms of building audiences. Right. Um, and I think most performers want to now build their own audience for stuff that means that they can do their own live stuff as much as possible. Mm. Or if something went wrong with their management or representation, <laughs> they would still have something to you know, fall back yeah, on. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they wouldn't be cut off and isolated. Exactly, so. yeah. yeah. Um, so for me, it's always interesting how people are using it. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you think... I mean, how, have you learnt anything that's really like helped you network on there? Or, like, say, I mean, on Facebook, obviously, you can add a lot more people and, and it's not as... Um, I don't feel like you get as much of a personal relationship unless you really put in the time to talk to someone mm. on there. But on Twitter, I feel like you can pick and choose and it kind of feels a bit more like you're uh, relating and chatting more on a personal... Because you, you, I really think about stuff I put up on there, do you know what I mean? Rather than on Facebook, where every old yeah. bit goes on. There's been some stuff in... Chortle a while well at the end of Edinburgh last year about rating systems star rating systems in mm. particular what are your thoughts on star rating systems um, well, I think other people have said this I think the thing about stars it's kind of a necessary evil if we could scrap them completely I think nobody likes them except maybe comedians who can sort of splash them all over their posters in, in Edinburgh in particular but because it's like an arms race, because everyone else does it, you have to do it as well. Because as websites, you know, we need to have our profiles out there 
So if all the newspapers are giving shows stars, which I think I'm right in saying they all do, um, you know, we have to as well. Otherwise, you know, we'll give a rave review to someone and they might use a quote of ours, but they're more likely to use stars because, you know, people in Edinburgh, those posters, people like nothing better than having five star, five star, five stars just glued all over their posters. And I'm, I'm reluctant to do it. I think, I think the same as, I'm not sure what Chortle's position is at the moment. I'm not sure whether he said he definitely won't or he definitely will, but he's reluctant about it. But yeah, you know, I only, you know, I, I, at the Evening Standard, we do it throughout the year. We do stars throughout the year. I, on my website, I only do, if I, I think, if I'm right, I only do stars in Edinburgh. It's just, it is like the whole game kind of changes in Edinburgh. Everything kind of changes. Um, you sort of have to sort of approach things slightly differently. And what is the difference for you between a four and a five star review? Well, that's funny, actually, because last week... Um, London is funny. Gave Josie Long four and a half stars, and if you read, I, I don't know how. I mean, I don't know how often they give four and a half. But if you read my his review and my review, I mean, there wasn't a lot of difference between it. We were both totally enthusiastic about it, and kind of couldn't really see much where Josie Long put a foot wrong. But I gave it four stars because it wasn't quite five stars to me. It did kind of dip slightly at one point. You know, a five star review. Is kind of Daniel Kitson basically. <laughs> That's not not quite only Daniel Kitson, but a five star review has to be special. Um, it's really, I mean, that's the thing. I think in Edinburgh, I don't have a hard and fast rule, but it feels like I only give one five star review every Edinburgh, for instance. And four and four. So that's why when Paul at London is funny did it, I thought, mm, I wonder if I should have four and do four and a half stars because. As I said, I might only give one five-star review in Edinburgh, but I might give a lot of four-star reviews. Um, and you maybe want some way of... Again, it's that thing of that shorthand, four and a half stars, 4.5 stars, to show that even though this isn't a five-star show, it's better than all the other four-star shows. Because it's so, such fine margins with, with stars. You know, start, you know, I've had that where I've come out of a gig in London and I've gone, mm, that's a 3.5... That's 3.5... In my head, I'm thinking... That's 3.5. So I could either say it's 3.6 and round it up to four stars, or it's 3.4 and round it down to three stars. And yet it's 3.5, and you know, we're not allowed to do 3.5. It's as uh, nobody likes the star rating system, but I don't know. No one's come up with a better solution. Do you uh, think we'd be better without it? Well, yeah, I wish no one had it. I mean, that's the thing if, if we'd all get together, you know, but then if all the critics said we didn't um we if all the critics um got together and said we weren't going to do it and uh you know then the comedians might miss them the comedians might say you know there are people that don't like them but i mean i think well probably the comedians that get five stars love them you know and the less stars they get the less they like the less they like them basically was a three and four star review act uh, I don't like them. <laughs> yeah. And it might be because I haven't got a five star. But even but, three stars yeah. is a good review. But it's just, it's not, you wouldn't put three stars on your... But maybe if it's three stars, you'd find a quote you could use, a line. Because the three stars does mean it's a good show. Certainly in London, in the Evening Standard, if you give something three stars. But there is this thing they call it, don't they call it star inflation? Because all the sort of, some websites were just giving too many five star reviews. And it, you know... 
just it didn't didn't it didn't feel right. Um, so I've tried to be sparing with my stars anyway, and then they, you know, they just have a bit more value, and I know that even if people outside don't know that, I know that if I'm giving five stars, it's a special show. I I read a thing that said that you consider reviewing directorial notes for. Mm. Or, or yeah, director, yeah, unofficial director or notes. Yeah, I was feeling a bit pompous that day. I suppose, <laughs> but yeah, um, just you don't still feel that way, or yeah, I do I still feel pompous about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I think it's constructive. I, I like to think that it's kind of constructive that I'm not. Well, particularly if I'm saying a show's bad, I mean I'm I'm pinpointing why it's bad. Um, yeah, I do think I I think. That's someone said. I'm trying to think. Someone actually said to me, "Did I want to direct a show? Who was it said this to me a while ago?" And at the time, it was not a sort of situation where I could discuss it. But I kind of thought maybe I should say I'm a maybe it's hard. I mean, it's hard working for the standard to direct shows. I don't. I don't think you could do both. It would be there'd be sort of potential conflicts of interest. But I'd quite like to do that. And I think it's one of the things in Edinburgh. You know, there's a lot more people who... A lot of shows are directed or have someone in the background kind of offering director's notes. Not necessarily journalists, but people doing it in the background who, who punters or critics don't even know about. And maybe I would quite like to do that. So, yeah, I am available for that. If, if, people, want to, if people want to discuss that, maybe we can work something out. Which shows have you directed before? Or have you... No, I haven't. Oh, OK. Oh, no, so no, I haven't. I've never directed. No, what did I say to give you an impression I had? Oh, it just sounded like like you. you no, might someone have been said to me, "Would you like to?" And oh, okay. I didn't. And at the time, I kind of laughed it off. And then afterwards, I thought, "Well, if they're serious, I'll maybe take them up on the offer." And I can't think of who it was now. Well, um, it sounds like because well, you've done it this for long enough, and you've seen so many shows, you you would know the difference quite quickly early on in a show. What, what's a good and bad show? I mean, how would you? What, is there something you specifically are looking for in a show? I'd say I'd say it was the other way around. Actually, I'd say okay. my skill is actually when they think the show is finished, I can say no, it isn't finished. You've still <laughs> got to do the, You know, on July the thirty first, when they do their last preview and they think it's all ready to go, that's when I would come in and say, no, that last twenty minutes, there's a bit twenty minutes from the end that doesn't quite work together, doesn't quite hold together. I think looking at a raw script or looking at a very raw show in the early stages, because I'm not used to seeing shows at that stage, I wouldn't, it would, I mean, I'd be interested to, I should maybe, you know, I see, but you know, the way, when, the only way I see shows in the early stages are when people are doing club sets and they're bits that kind of end up in shows and, and how they might join those bits together. I don't really see shows in the early stages and I don't know, I'd be a bit freaked out by them probably. It'd be more... As I said, in the same way, you know, when I see a show in Edinburgh, I think I like to think I'm giving sort of director's notes. That's the stage of a show that I can spot what works and what doesn't. I think in an early... Well, the other problem, of course, is I can spot what doesn't work. I don't know if I can necessarily offer a solution. All I can do is... Because uh, that's, that's quite often all I'm saying in, in a review, particularly when I'm limited in, in terms of space. All I can say is, that bit doesn't work. Uh, I can't necessarily offer a solution. I'm not, I'm not that good at my job. And maybe that's why I'm not a director, because I can't offer the solution. Does that mean when you're writing your reviews, mm. you write them as like a letter to the comedian, or do you write it as like 
do you, do you write the do you write the review for the comedian if it's direct your notes, or do you write it for the audiences that might be reading them? Well, yeah, I think ultimately I'm writing it for the audience. You know, I'm writing it in the simplest sense as a kind of consumer guide. You know, it's um, to say whether the show, what the show's about, to, to the potential audience, to the potential ticket buyer. I'm saying what the show's about. Is it any good? This is why it's interesting. So it might be of interest to you. Um, I'm sort of doing that primarily for, for, the, for, the, for the audience. And then, but I think the same, but the thing, as I said, that the, the things that I pick out in it should be, of in, you know, constructive enough to be of interest to the actual performer as well. But I think I'm writing, you know, as I said, you know, if the reviews appear in an evening standard, it's there, you know, I've got that job because I'm writing for the readers of the evening standard who might potentially be going to those gigs and buy tickets for those gigs. How would you define the audience of the Evening Standard? Is there like a type of show they particularly like? Well, I think just probably kind of more mainstream than, you know, a comedy website audience because it's, you know, that the people that pick up the Evening Standard, particularly now it's free, it's kind of anyone in London really. Um, and they're not necessarily going to be comedy fans or if they are comedy fans, they might it might just be Life at the Apollo or you know Michael McIntyre. Just statistically, that's just a fact. That's that's the kind of person it's going to be, because those are the most popular th comedy things. You know, either the Apollo shows or the road shows, or the gigs at the arena. Is that why you started Beyond the Joke so you could cover all that? So because I presume if the London Evening Standard has. Uh, narratives that have started for different comedians where they're covering X, mm. Y and Z they don't have room for Q because they've got these people that were already sort of, you know, they covered them last year that went well, they covered them this year cause it Slightly, counts. I mean slightly, I mean just it's more basic than that, it's just yes, there's a limited amount of space in newspapers and particularly two or three years ago there was just a hell of a lot of comedy to write about comedy was very exciting very interesting it seemed to be sort of going off in all sorts of different directions and I mean the standard does cover as I was saying you know whether it's Jade Adams or Tim Key or you know we've I've done an interview with Stuart Lee for them I've done an interview with Josie Long for them I mean they won't only cover Mickey Flanagan and you know Jason B Jason B Jason Bishop Jason Manford and John <laughs> Bishop but they won't only cover those um they do because they you know they want to be quite quite a cool quite a sort of happening paper so they'll cover you know the sort of comedy stuff that's coming come bubbling up as well but there's just simply so much on there's a limit to how much you can cover in the paper it's just purely down to that does it help if your agent if you have an agent who comes to the paper to sell it or do you do you take sort of unsolicited stuff from independent people as well i know that will depend but what do you mean you mean like a publicist yeah with an act yeah like do you because like I've spoken to a few people who have said that they now just almost ignore PR because they know that they're, they're biased on their shows they're getting paid to promote yeah. the shows yeah. would it um, would it be a case of you got you, you personally because you obviously schedule for them would you just ignore a PR and hopefully just go for the person the individual or, or the person promoting their show well it's both it's both okay. really I'm just sort of looking at everything that's on not particularly paying attention to who's doing the PR for it and then deciding what's possible, what we should suggest, I should suggest we cover in the standard. Um, 
and yeah, obviously if we're covering big stuff, there's obviously going to be a PR attached to it. There will be a PR involved. But if independent people want to get in touch with me, um, it is hard to get stuff into the standard if you're totally, totally independent or obviously if you're totally, totally new. I mean, you've got to sort of be... I think you've kind of got to be sort of on the situation of having done, done a show in Edinburgh or, you know, I think Jade had just about done a show in Edinburgh. Jade Adams had done a show last year. To sort of, you've got to be in that sort of ballpark um, to sort of be making, starting to make some kind of impact. Um, but that's why it's nice to have the website. So if someone comes to me with something and it catches my eye and it's interesting and I can't get it into the standard, it's nice to have another outlet. And, and you know, and obviously the great thing about the internet is, and, and, and having your own website, is you just go, right, I'll do it. And you can almost have the piece in piece online the next day or something you know it's almost in- instant um, I should just say for anyone listening um, that is Bruce's cat Pingu in the background uh, asking for more food we're building off of that we, we've discussed we've, we've had PR people on before and we've had a reviewer on before uh, and we've been talking a little bit about a sort of an ongoing discussion in the podcast about what makes a good flyer and marketing and PR at the fringe because obviously, as you said, everything, everything changes when you get up north rather than mm-hmm. when you do a show down here. Mm. What, say you, because obviously you have your commitments to review for certain places when you're up at the fringe, and I presume they have said to you, we need these things reviewed, would you like to review them? Or you mm. pitch saying, I would like to review these people again, or that kind of thing. Say you've got a three hour, what are you, just to come and watch, not even review, what are you looking for in terms of a a flyer or, or a uh, bit well, of marketing? Well, you don't really have a free hour in Edinburgh. I mean, <laughs> but I would see, I mean, obviously the thing, to give you a snapshot of Edinburgh last last summer, um, you know, every hour is taken in Edinburgh, every hour is spoken for, and it's, I said, yeah, I was up there for the, full, for the whole festival last year. To give you a snapshot, I think, no, I did have, I, I have to confess, I think I went away for about four days in the middle of it, so... If anyone's doing the maths here, I did have about four days off in the middle. I saw, so in about 20 days, I saw about 100 shows. So that's five shows a day. Um, Out of those 100 shows, I think we ran 15 reviews in the Evening Standard. And I ran 30 reviews on my website. So I saw 100 shows and I wrote reviews of 45, 45 of them. Now, if you're going to ask me why I didn't review the other 55, I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I think the answer is purely... Well, obviously, they weren't the best shows. If they were the best shows, I'd have made the time and I'd have found the space and made the time. So I suppose they weren't the best shows. But I think, ultimately, it was down to time. It was down to um, just every minute is spoken for. I don't really. I'm probably only, I probably drink less than anybody else in Edinburgh. I probably go to bed earlier than anybody else in Edinburgh. Uh, you know, so I get up earlier than anybody else in Edinburgh, and it's still just not tight enough time. You know, you sort of have those days where you don't. Oh, and obviously in Edinburgh there's shows you can see from lunchtime onwards. But I've had days where I've not left the flat till about five o'clock because I've been writing. You know, just catching up on that backlog of reviews. I get up at nine-ish and I'm writing reviews all day till about five o'clock. Um, so every 
you know, if people are upset, if people think I'm swanning around and that's why I'm not reviewing, going to the show or reviewing the show, um, far from it. I'm, I'm working very hard. Um, and it's a shame, you know. But that's the other thing. I think, I sort of feel, it's even if I can't write about a show, it's important to try and see shows just to see what people are up to, where, they're, where they are in their career. You know, have they, you know, like if I saw the show the previous year, how have they progressed? You know, to see them. So when I see next year's show, maybe I'll make more of an effort or try harder to review the next year's show. It's, um, yeah, so it's not just writing and reviewing, it's seeing shows. And I think, you know, and that's the other thing, you know, if, if a comedian or an agent or a publicist gets me or any, any of us critics... If they get us in to see the show, even if we don't review it, I think that's, in Edinburgh, I think that's still an achievement, just getting us to see it. Because, how many shows were there this year? 600? Mm. So that's the thing, you know, I saw 100 shows, and I felt quite guilty. I sort of felt, I'd still only, I still felt I'd only sort of scratched the surface, only seeing, six, only seeing a, a sixth of all the shows on. Um, because they're, you know, they're obviously great shows, and, you know, there's obviously lots of good shows in Edinburgh. Fantastic shows. I feel sad. I'm just getting, I'm just getting that Edinburgh feeling of sadness and frustration that I can't, I can't do more. I feel like, um, I feel like the end of Schindler's List when Schindler, Schindler said that they're going, yeah, but you saved all these Jews. You saved all these Jews. And Schindler's saying, yeah, but I could have saved so many more. I could have done this and the other. I could have saved so many more. I'm feeling that. Yeah, is it Holocaust Memorial Day this week or something? I feel the same about comedy. You know. I saw so many shows, but if only I could have seen more. I could have stayed up an hour later. I could have gone to another late in life. I could have gone to a free for thing in the afternoon. But, you know, it's over. It's, that war is over. The next one is in all, this August. <laughs> I'll have to uh, tackle that when I get there. Uh, we, we, I mean, I've, I've got some friends who have done the paid fringe. And I, I know that a few of them have taken it personally if like a review they know a reviewer was in and they didn't write it and a few of them have been a few some of them get a little bit annoyed when like they've given them a comp ticket yeah and then they yeah. don't do it what are your feelings on that is it the same kind of yeah I can't remember exactly what she said but Beck Hill did write this thing after Edinburgh I was going to ask her to do something about it where Beck said yeah if, if you give a comp and they don't review it they should give you the money back for the ticket something something like that um and I don't know, it's, I think, again, every circumstance is different. It depends, you know, we're not blagging free tickets just for a laugh. We, we're getting tickets to go to shows with every intention of, well, A, reviewing it, but B, to see it, you know, again, and with someone like Beck, you know, you want to see that show because people were talking about her a bit. And if you can't get a review in that year, you know, you'll want to see next year's show and you'll want to compare it to last year's show. So all these things are research. Mm. All, I don't. So I don't think you should have to pay for a ticket if you don't. Um, if you don't review. If you don't write a review, um, as long as you're legitimate. I mean, obviously there are so many little websites. You know, anyone can set up a website and just say I'm a critic and go up there. And you know, some people think and some people say, oh, people are just doing that just to black tickets because it is so easy to set up a website. And if you can get loads of tickets for shows in Edinburgh. It's a great way of seeing shows. But, you know, I think if you're a professional journalist, you can't be expected to see all every... Sh you can't be expected to review every show you see. But 
it's part of your profession to see all these shows. And in a way, I think comedians should respect that. Um, and I know it's hard for comedians because they, they, a lot of them lose money in Edinburgh. But you may, they have to just factor that in. Because, as I think I touched on before, you know, with so many shows on, it's sometimes, you know, if you're not one of the top shows there, you know, one of the buzz shows, one of the nominee shows, it's an achievement just to get a critic into your show. You know, as I said, that's something, that's an achievement, you know, and a PR, I've spoken to PRs about this, so, you know, I think there was a thing a couple of years ago where I said, a PR was like, sort of hassling me to come to a show, and I said, look, I don't think there's any chance I'm going to write, I think this was before I had my website, and again, it's, you know, with the standard, you know, with 15 slots to write a review, 15, 15 weekdays, you get to a stage when it gets to the, la- the start of the last week, and you kind of know that all your slots are taken because they're going to, once the shortlist is announced, you're going to review, if you haven't already reviewed them, you're going to re- mop up all the shortlisted shows. So all your slots are taken. And I said, to, I said to a publicist, I said, well, look, I can come to your show, but I can pretty much tell you now I won't be able to review it. Um, is it better than me not coming to the show? And she said that for her, it was. I mean, she said, you know, on their big spreadsheet of who's been in, if you've got a kind of big blank, no one's been in. But if you can actually say, well, at least Bruce came into it, there's a tick in that box, that looks good. Um, and then, then, of course, she gets grief, I guess, because they say, well, you got him into the show, why didn't he review it? But it has to be better to get a critic in than not get a critic in, I think. And I think acts, performers have to, um, have to um, just accept that that it's just factor that into the costs. If they want coverage, they have to factor that into the costs. So, I mean, you you don't uh, pay for tickets that often, and, and I assume because you're getting the comps to mm. do uh, the reviews for different places as your site, mm. even standard. Do you look at the cost of the ticket for the general public, and does that have an impact on your review? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've often thought, you know, with the star, going back to the star ratings thing, yeah, I've often thought, is, if you're doing this as a consumer guy, if you're doing the star ratings as, as the quality of the performance, then that's one thing. But if you're doing the star ratings as a sort of kind of consumer guide, you know, you see a £5 show that isn't as good as a £15 show, but it is really good for a £5 show. Um... And I don't often reflect that. Um, it's, it's a funny situation, the sort of buying, you know, people who buy tickets uh, and people who don't. I mean, I don't often reflect that unless it's a gig, like maybe something at the O2 where tickets are sort of a higher price. And then you think, is this worth the price you've got to pay for a show there? I mean, what was interesting, the other sort of side, sidebar to that is when Peter Kay did his last show at the O2, um, there weren't press tickets for that, and I had to buy a ticket. So, first of all, you're more aware... Yeah, you are psychologically more aware of how much it's costing because you bought a ticket. Um, But secondly, because I bought a ticket, I had a crappy seat at the back, whereas when you get a press ticket, you get, you know... When I've seen shows at the O2, you know, who's it I saw... Not Lee Evans, someone else recently at the O2. But, you know, for instance, when I went to see Seinfeld at the O2, and that was, I think, £100, or tickets were very expensive for Seinfeld. 
um, all the press had to, oh, it's Python, that's the one I'm thinking of, Python this year. We were all, all the press were in the front block. So if you didn't look round and see the 15,000 people behind you, you could have imagined you were watching Monty Python at the Soho Theatre or something. You know, so, you know, you could also say when you're reviewing a show, do you try and factor that into your head? That what's the show like for the person right at the back who's watching it on a video screen, whereas you're so close you can see the whites of uh, John Cleese's eyes. It's, um, you're kind of a bit pampered, you know, as a, as a critic. You know, there's always a thing at the, at the Eventim Apollo, as they now call it, the Hammersmith Apollo, where the press tickets tend to be the front row of the second block back. So you've got a really good view, but you've also got lots of leg room because there's, there's, there's no row in front of you. So, yeah, critics get a bit of a pamp. But, but on the other hand, theatre critics often get free drinks in the interval. So theatre critics, I think, get more pampered than comedy critics. <laughs> and it's, yeah, you have to sort of try and distance yourself from all these things and, uh, and try and be as fair about everything as you can. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I mean, and a lot of performers I know who are outstanding, or at least in my opinion outstanding, um, are going from the paid to the free fringe. Yeah. Yeah. So does that have an impact? Do you, do you review the free fringe or is it mainly the paid stuff? Or? Well, a lot of critics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Me included, we got a lot of stick a few years ago because we didn't really cover the free fringe much. And now we do cover it, obviously, because of people like John Kearns uh, and uh, Carrie Adloyd and whatever. We do cover it, and we now get sick for not covering it enough, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you could see that the Free Fringe, I think, I think when Imran Yusuf got a Best New... You could see it, you know, he got a Best Newcomer nomination, and I think that was the first time a Free Fringe show had ever got anything from Foster's. And then it went from that to John, Cur you know, Carriad got a nomination. John Kearns got the best new, won the best newcomer, and now John Kearns, you know, this year won the won the top prize. Um, I think you know we try and as a critic, I just try and see everything as a totally level playing field, and 
try and judge a show on its merits and not judge a show on who the manager is or who the agent is or who the PR is or how many flyers I've seen of theirs. Um, just just try and have it as level playing field as possible. I was going to say, when you, when you write a review then, regardless of where it's at, do you ever try and put in something that you think someone can use as a quote? Do you ever, do you ever consider how, an, how a comedian could use the no. review? No, and sometimes they get taken out of context, and sometimes, uh, yeah, I mean, if anything, it's the other way around. You think to yourself, this could be taken out of context, you know, and there's always famous examples of where someone said something like, I don't, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I can't think of an example, but it's that someone said, you know, this is brilliantly awful, brilliantly awful, and it'll be cut, you know, the quote will be, this is brilliant or something, you know, it's uh no, I don't, I don't think in those terms. How do you, I mean, have you noticed anyone taking yours out of context? How do you feel about that when that happens? Um, if it's really bad, I am really annoyed. And I think I have had a word. I think, I can't remember what it was. I think there was one where... No, I mean, some of the things they do are things where someone might have gone solo from a sketch show and they've taken a quote from a, when they did a sketch show three or four years ago and they've put that on their solo show poster or something. No one's... I, I can't... There is one case, but I don't want to say it because I can't remember it exactly. There's only one really horrendous case I've had. And there was another case where someone didn't just misquote me, they misspelled my surname as well. That really annoyed me, the mayor. But I won't say who that is. They sort of, you know, they'd, mis they'd quoted it, not incorrectly. No, I think the quote was accurate, but they spelled my name wrong. And obviously, being, being vain, that bothered me. Um, but it doesn't happen too much. Um, the standard's an odd, you know, the standard is an odd thing in Edinburgh because it's not a national paper. We were kind of odd. But obviously, as it's online, all my reviews appear online, you know, a review in Standard is kind of just as useful as a review in The Guardian, in a way, because, you know, it's online, available to anyone in Edinburgh. So, you know, if you're Googling Josie Long review, then a review in Standard, and in Edinburgh, my review in the Standard's just as likely to come up as a review in The Guardian. When it comes to reading other people's reviews, like, because I presume mm. you check out what other, you know, not the competition, I don't assume you think of other reviews as competition, but when you check out your peers... Mm. Who are the reviewers you rate and look and look for when you're looking to read reviews? Well, first of all, I really, really try hard, and this obviously is hard in Edinburgh, but easier. It's easier during the year. I really try not to read reviews before I've reviewed a show myself, because um, it's not so much that it will sway your opinion. It's more. What's the best way of saying it? Expressing it's just. If you're going to say exactly the same thing as someone else, you, you want to just say it without having read them say it already. Uh, it, it just, it's just going to happen. And I always have this thing with Steve Bennett at Chortle, who I, who I do respect, um, that we're just so on the same page about everything, you know, and we have used the same adjectives and the same words and the same comparisons. And um, funnily enough, today we both reviewed the new act of the year show last night and my review went up before him 
and there was one guy in it, Chris, do you know Chris Betts at I all? love Chris Betts, yeah. Well, uh, maybe it's just me, but the first thing I wrote in my notes was Daniel Kitson lookalike. Just because um, he's got that, he's got a bushy beard. I'd never seen Chris before. He's got, right. At the moment, he's got a yeah, bushy beard and a shaved yeah. head, yeah. Yeah. which isn't Canadian the look that Daniel Kitson is rocking at the moment, but right. Daniel Kitson has certainly had that look in the past and the glasses. And I just thought, I've got to get my review up before Steve, because Steve's bound to say, Daniel Kitson look-alike. So I've got to make sure my review appears before him, so it doesn't look like I... And I did my review went up in the morning. His, I saw his review at lunchtime. And he hasn't said. Maybe he doesn't. Look, you don't think he looks like Daniel Kitson then? No, no. But then, but then I don't remember. I don't remember seeing Kitson with with the same kind of style. Yeah, I'll have to Google. Do some googling later. But I've seen Kitson when, after he had his haircut at one point, he did it completely shaved, and he still had the beard. And then what happened was because the beard then became a hipster fashion accessory, he's shaved the beard off. Now he's got a small beard now. But at one point, he had quite a big beard. So it's things like that. You know, I didn't want to read somebody else's review because. I didn't want to change what I'd said just because they'd said it as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, actually it was interesting today because Steve actually did pick a different winner to me. Steve, like, yeah, he was a judge and he picked a completely different winner in his review. Someone who I kind of didn't have in my top three. But usually we, we, we're, on the, we're on the same page about things. Interesting. So Steve, Steve, when you come back from Edinburgh... Steve's the main one you go and read and catch up on, or are there others? No, all of them. I mean, all of them. I mean, after I've written my review, if you're talking about Edinburgh, after I've written my own review, I'll then see what other people. Once I've hit send or hit publish, yeah. uh, I'll then look at everyone else's review. And if I'm totally wide of the mark, I'll go in and edit my own <laughs> on my website. I'll check. No, I wouldn't change it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you can. No, as soon as my review is kind of done and dusted, I want to. I do. I'm very keen to see what other people have said. Because you sort of wonder, and particularly with something like Steve, <laughs> I don't know why I've given him any publicity, he never gives me any, but um, <laughs> you kind of, yeah, you just want to, talk, because I always expect him to agree with me, I sort of want to compare notes with him, and it's interesting when he doesn't. Okay. Obviously, Edinburgh is your busiest time of the year, mm. and the run-up to it, the month or so before, I imagine, is sort of planning a military thought type thing. You know, you're probably sitting around planning out minute by minute where you're going to go, how you're going to eat that day or whatever. Um, if, I, if, so, if I, as a performer, wanted to get you to come down to my show pre-Edinburgh just to watch, not review necessarily, is it, what's the best means to do so? Or do you not do that? Well, that's hard. That's hard for a number of reasons. Um, in the past, when the standard had had a bit more space, um, I did sometimes review Edinburgh-bound shows in London. But... And, you know, acts were happy for me to do it because they knew how tough it was going to be to get an act in Edinburgh, get reviewed in Edinburgh. So towards the end of July, when they felt the show was finished, they'd say, you can review it in London. But I don't know if that's fair because the show isn't quite finished. And it can work both ways. It might, it might not be fair because I might make extra allowances for them. I might be generous because it's not finished. So they might benefit from it. Or it might work the other way. And it might not be ready, and I might just think it's rubbish, and they might... Then, you know, they've started it, you know... If they get a good review out of me in July, it's a great kickstart to their festival. If they get a bad review, and they haven't even gone up to Edinburgh, it's like a kick in the teeth before they've even started. Or it might be that, what we said about director's notes, it might be an added thing to say, oh, yeah, I've got to 
I've got to still, I've got to tweak this. I can see where it needs tweaking. And luckily, because Bruce has seen it in July, there's still time. But generally, I don't like to see previews because time is really tight, even in July. And if I see a show in preview and I'm not blown away by it, or there doesn't seem to be something special about it, it's kind of unlikely I'm going to see it again in Edinburgh. You know, there just isn't the time, you know, as I said, there's hardly the time to see shows once. So a show you've seen before Edinburgh, you're unlikely to see again. So I would, if, if this is sort of advice, I wouldn't necessarily try and get critics to see shows in July because if they do, that might be your one opportunity, unless you're totally confident that it is going to blow them away and you're going to get something positive about it. I sort of think, you know, you get one bite at the cherry and you, you want to sort of save that till the show is ready and up and running. I mean, the same question, the same problem is there for shows previewing in those first few days in Edinburgh. <coughs> you know, it's your best time to be seen in Edinburgh. But if your show's not ready, it's probably not a good thing. You know, you've really just got to know that your show's ready. Um, and it used to be traditionally that those days weren't press days in Edinburgh. But then people tweaked so that press were up there. And publicists went, tried to get try to get their shows to say let the press in on the first when you know the very first Wednesday you know I think this year I went up you know I went I don't usually go up for the previews and I did go up this year from the very first day and you know the moment I arrived at Wednesday at five o'clock I could have gone straight into shows and reviewed them um, but we with the standard we don't run reviews till the following Monday so I sort of um, I sort of you know I, I was a bit more sort of thoughtful about what I'd say, sort of considered, didn't just try and pile into every show that was previewing. So, um, how often do you go to comedy for leisure, just for fun? And when you do go, I, I mean, do you prefer to go to a show just to, you know, just, just silly ideas type thing? Or do you like going to things that make you think or have like a sort of, maybe like a political or a substance behind it, like a kind of agenda to the, to the, to the bit? Uh, well, because of my website, uh, I don't. I probably go less for fun now than I've ever gone before. Because, as unless I'm specifically asked not to review any show I go to, I'll, I'll write about now. Um, as it happens, I'm going to a show for fun tonight because they've asked that thing. This comedian, the show, the Duchess, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sarah Pascoe, Michael Legg, um, Simon Evans, Robin Ince, really good lineup. And they're not doing their usual sets. They're doing sort of different material. So it'll be interesting. It'll be sort of refreshing from that point of view. And they've actually said they don't really want it reviewed. So I won't review that anywhere. Um, so I'm quite looking forward to that. That will feel like a bit of a night off. Um, although I think I'm going to Dane Baptiste before that at the Soda Theatre. And I will, I will review that. So it's a bit of, bit of both tonight. Um... But yeah, I don't go... When, when I go to comedy, I kind of go to all sorts. And, you know, you know, I do think it is possible to like Michael McIntyre and Daniel Kitson and Stuart Lee. I do you know. I prefer Stuart Lee and I prefer Daniel Kitson, but I don't hate Michael McIntyre. I think I've got a lot of respect for what he does. I, I, it's just a shame. I mean, I think the problem with Michael McIntyre is that you have to go to the O2 Arena to see him. Um, you know, if he was... You know, it'd be lovely if he did something like a month in a West End theatre, or or even a couple of weeks at the Apollo. You know, that would might maybe people's opinions of him would change a bit there. Um, it's a shame that you know 
the big the big comedians who can sell arenas, do arena tours. I mean, you know, some have kind of I don't know what the reasons are for it, um, but I've noticed some you know pull back from it. You know, Al Murray did the O2, but since then has done smaller venues. Bill Bailey, I think I saw him at Wembley, and since then I've seen him do theatre gigs. Um, and actually, Bill Bailey's quite well suited to you know a big show, but. Um, yeah, it's just a shame, you know, I'm not the first critic to have said that, you know, it's a, a shame that, you know, comedy has gone into arenas. It could just be ego. Well, it's kind of, I mean, that's sort of what Al Murray said. Al Murray kind of said he did it to sort of see what it was like, you know, and it's obviously nice to think you can fill out a venue like that. Um, but I, I don't think, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's very tempting to do. You know, I think Al Murray said he didn't even make that much money out of it. So, you know, you sort of assume people are doing it for money. He said he didn't even make much money out of it. Who, um, are Daniel Kitson, Stuart Lee, who are your favourite comedians? Are they up there? Yeah, and probably Josie Long after last week. Josie Long. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm sort of, it's, when there's so much on and so much on at places like Soho, and, and and Leicester Square Theatre and Bloomsbury and stuff and obviously bigger gigs. I do sometimes worry that I've kind of slightly lost touch at the very grassroots level. And, you know, that's why, from, from my point of view, it's good to go to those competitions because that's when you sort of hopefully see the sort of rising stars coming through at the club, at, the, at those competitions. Um, but, you know, people get talked about, I hear, you know, as I said, I really like Tom Ward. I think Tom Ward's very good. Um, uh, and who's the other guy that, yeah, I, I saw a while ago and he's good. With Dave Green. Oh, Dave, one line yeah. ago. Yeah. Very yeah. Right. yeah, he's very really yeah. good. Yeah, Just yeah. sort of stuck out. But, and these, but these are people that I've seen in competitions rather than... And Johnny Pelham. Johnny Pelham is very good. But people I've seen in competitions rather than seen doing club sets and uh, I don't often see see them in clubs I think if I'm going out for if I'm going out for fun I'm more likely to want to see people that I just know I enjoy that I've seen before and sort of old people like Adam Bloom or someone you know that I just have liked for years and you know Adam Bloom just for some it's interesting you know this is another conversation why some comedians make it and others don't and I don't, I don't quite know why Adam Bloom isn't much bigger than he is but, you know, it's, it's weird. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, like, so, I mean, I was chatting with, um, I think I could talk about this. I was chatting uh, on the way back from my gig last night with Adam Kay, and mm. um, he was just telling me that he would much prefer to be the comedian who writes for other comedians on panel shows than be the guy who has a blip of being seen on TV, and then everyone's like, oh, you used to be on TV. And, used to, yeah. and do you know what I mean? Like, he would rather that... His profile stayed the same, but grew with people that liked what he does. Who is that? Adam K. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then, then, because like he was saying to me that he doesn't think Crims, you know, the program mm. he's doing, will sell more tickets if he does Edinburgh. Like he, he, he doesn't. He cares about the writer. They'll care about the people in. Yeah, it. I don't think it will. Ellis, I think Ellis James will do better out of Crims, won't he? Probably. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't really come across him to be honest yeah. until yeah. Uh, that show. So. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 hard. It's. Uh, what you want out of and as you say some comedians go in other directions and you know 
I remember seeing Henry Packer, and he was really good, but from what I'd heard... But then I think for a while he was writing for others, right? Mm. Henry was writing for some quite big comedians, and now he seems to have gone back to doing more stand-up himself. I don't know what the reasons are for that, whether he, he saw how much money they were making or something, or... Um, I um, I read a thing... You, well, you had an interview with John Fleming, mm. where you said that you were better at... Like, you know, better at pinpointing... Uh, music stars than comedy stars <laughs> mm. why do you why did you say that why do you, do you still think that's the same did I, say, I don't know if that's true did I say that yeah probably because I have spotted you know when I used to, I used to write about music before yeah. I wrote about comedy I probably told John I probably told was telling John about the time that I saw you two at the half moon in Herne Hill and seeing you two in a pub you could imagine them straight away being a stadium band that's probably the story <laughs> I told John but I don't know, it's, there's something, I mean, it's just very similar with comedians and, and, and bands. When a band, some, sometimes when they're playing small gigs, you kind of can't imagine them being big stars. And then once they are big stars, it seems the most natural thing in the world. Um, I mean, talking about one-liner comedians, you know, I, you know, I always quite liked Jimmy Carr. But I could never have predicted that Jimmy Carr would be that popular. I, just because, I suppose because he was a bit filthier and a bit smuttier when he was, you know, doing live gigs. And yet, you know, all these comedians that just seem... It's, it's, it's kind of amazing, you know, Matt Lucas and David Wellens, who I used to love. You know, it's some, it, it was amazing the way Little Britain took off. I, I, I liked it, but I couldn't quite... It still took me by surprise that it was so popular. Um, so that's the thing. I mean, I can spot comedians who I think are very talented and very funny, but I sort of, maybe I'm less good at predicting where they'll be in five years' time. But I did spot Michael McIntyre. I mean, I'm sure I must have told John Fleming that. But the point was, I saw Michael McIntyre. I sort of, by accident... Um, Again, I don't know if I said that. I feel like I'm on the chat show now, repeating <laughs> myself. I don't know if I've told this story before, but we're talking about how do you get the press to see your shows, how do you get people in, blah, blah, blah. Um, Michael McIntyre, I knew absolutely nothing about him, but I saw his poster in Edinburgh, and it had nothing on it except his face grinning and the venue that he was at. And I thought... That's unusual, a poster that doesn't say anything about the act apart from just the time and the place and the name of the act. I thought, that's unusual, I'll go and check him out. I saw him in the tiny attic room in the Pleasance and was totally blown away, thought he was fantastic, really pushed hard for him to get a a Comedy Award nomination. And, And of course it turned out, after the event, it was a printing error, it was actually a mistake and his posters got screwed up they should have had more information on them, some, some stuff on them, and it didn't have them, and they had to run with them anyway, they had to use them anyway, it's too late to get new ones made up. So it was a total accident. That's the story I've been told anyway, I don't know if I, maybe, maybe that, that's how I remember it. And, and that caught my eye, and that made me go to that show. I just thought, he's an interesting young man, and very brave not to have loads of quotes plastered over his poster, so... I went to see him and, and kind of like, sort of like to think I sort of had a slight, tiny, tiny part in his discovery. I think he'd have probably made it without my help, but uh, 
yeah. It was a like we were talking about before. It was like a it's a purple cow. It's completely different mm. and it stood out. Yeah. Um, what I mean when you say you know just slightly going off to the music tangent because you review music for a long time as well. Mm. What do you think makes a music star? Like what what are you looking out for in in that? Well, it's always this, it is the same things. I mean, it's I think you know music and comedy. As I said, there's all these overlaps. I think it's. It's like you do something that is as this is this is to be a big star. This isn't to be get great reviews. This is to be a big star. This is sort of this is my theory. If I I'll try and explain it simply, you have to do something that's similar enough to something big that's been successful before, but slightly different. You've got to have your own slight difference, so it isn't like, so you're not a tribute band. You've got to, you know, and, and that's why someone like, you know, Oasis weren't remotely original, but Liam Gallagher was a great frontman, was a charismatic frontman. So Oasis kind of were doing something that had been done before, but they had a lead singer who was a little bit like John Lydon and a little bit like. You know various other singers, and you know, you know, you think of the Smiths or Morrissey or someone. You're doing, you know, and that's the thing about all the, all the big comedians now. None of them are doing anything that original, but they've all kind of got their own slight angle on it. So Mickey Flanagan's a kind of East Ender. Peter Kay's a sort of Mancunian. John Bishop's a sort of Liverpudlian. So they all kind of have something that makes them slightly different from each other. But they're all kind of doing they're all doing a very recognisable formula. Sounds like I'm being a bit harsh on them. I suppose template. There's a template of what they do. And you know, they all kind of take it slightly off in their own direction, but not so far that it's gonna scare the masses away for again for want of a better patronising word um, so and uh, you know, I don't know if you can cynic I'm not saying they're cynical about it I'm not saying I don't know if you can be cynical about it if you're cynical about it it might not work it has to come naturally and someone like John Bishop you know that's the way he talks that's why it, I mean I'm not saying it's not hard work for him but it kind of it's, it's how he is he hasn't thought I'm going to do stuff like this to be really successful and make loads of money. That's just how John Bishop, you know, that's what John, you know, when I saw his first show in Edinburgh, when again, there were, I, I wasn't that impressed. I mean, I was much more impressed by Michael McIntyre than I was when I first saw John Bishop. John was doing a small room, one of those tin hut type venues, I think. Um, and I kind of thought he's okay, but I just thought there was nothing special about John Bishop. But looking back now, you know, he was doing, I don't know what year this would have been, 2006, 2007 or something and John was pretty much doing the same thing he's doing at the O2 Arena um, and it just kind of wasn't quite the right time or the right place but then a couple of years later he got he got a nomination and because he got a nomination I mean that's why all these things are a snowball effect he got a nomination that got TV people in to see him you know he said he couldn't get arrested until he got an, an award nomination so it goes back to what we were saying earlier on about competitions. You know, comedians don't really like competitions, but John Bishop, you know, acknowledged 
that without getting the nomination, he wouldn't have got seen by the sort of influential people who moved him up that ladder. Okay. And, you know, like, the, I don't want to call them cult comedians, because that's not really fair, but the people like Josie Long or, or uh, Daniel Kitson, mm. who have a base of fans, are not doing... I don't want to call it the formulaic thing, but let's call it that for now, just because that's the... <laughs> we the know, yeah, we know what you mean. By yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully. I'm, I'm hoping no one listening to this is mis- misinterpreting mm. that, because it's not meant in that way. What do, you, what do you think they've done that's taken them from being like a circuit performer to being their own... I don't want to say brand, but do you know what I mean? Their own entity that elevates them above just everything. That's just sort well, of, you know... Well, firstly, Daniel Kitson is kind of the except in every sense is the exception that proves the rule. Daniel Kitson doesn't fit into any of the sort of, you know, no one can say I want to have a career like Daniel Kitson because no one's going to be able to have a career like Daniel Kitson. He hasn't played by sort of cliched rules, obviously. You know, he hasn't used publicists. He hasn't got high powered management. And yet he's phenomenally, phenomenally successful and he's done it entirely on his terms. And he's only been able to do that because he's so talented. Um, and I don't know, it's just... Some people want to do stuff in a slightly different direction. Um, and so likewise with Josie Long. And she just... That's the direction she wants to do stuff. And, you know, she's pretty uncompromising. But she's so good. She has built up a pretty big audience but but she's interesting because to me Josie Long you know going back to what I was saying about Jimmy Carr you know Josie Long's very different to Jimmy Carr and I could never see Josie Long being a household name but I don't think she's that far away from being a household name you know she's the one because she's had these political shows you know she'll be asked to appear on if any you know if it's you know she was on Woman's Hour last week and she's had shows on radio for herself and I suppose it's like Bridget Christie I mean I'd be interested to see how big Bridget Christie becomes because you know she's had so much success with these last two shows and at the moment off the top of my head as far as I know the biggest like runs she's had in London are at the Soho Theatre but I mean she's done enormous record breaking runs at the Soho mm. Theatre so she could obviously do much bigger venues and she hasn't yet and it'd be interesting to see at what point she says, oh, well, this year I'm going to do my show at Hammersmith Apollo or, you know, or do a bigger, you know, that's what would be nice if Bridget did, you know, rather than do a month at Soho, do a week at the Ambassador's Theatre or do two weeks at another theatre in London or something. Um, it's like Louise Romola. Yeah, but that's the totally, you know, I was thinking that when we were talking about the free fringe I mean, she's totally sort of doing her own thing. And she's, you know, and again, this kind of goes against what I've been saying all along because she's done her own thing without getting an award nomination, mm. or at least without getting the Foster's Award nomination. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think she's as good as Daniel Kitson. She's good, but she's not as good as Daniel Kitson. Um, you kind of can't, she's just such a force of nature. She's been able to do it, um, but it's been something, you know, going to her gigs from the very first ones I saw, she seemed to attract a completely different audience. A different audience to a John Bishop audience, but also a different audience to a Josie Long audience mm. or a Bridget Christie audience. Um, and I, 
you know, again, we're talking a little bit about marketing a show and selling a show. And I sort of, I don't know, you'd have to ask her this or other people might know better than me. But apart from the word of mouth, that it actually was a good show, I think one of the reasons she got this audience along was just that what would Beyonce do title? Mm. The title seemed to touch a chord. Um, you know, it attracted women, it attracted Beyonce fans, you know, mm. in Edinburgh. So, you know, it, whether it was luck or planned, it just seemed to fall into place. Yeah, I um, when I was talking to Julian Hall about mm. uh, planning his, like, Edinburgh, essentially, when he was reviewing, um, mm. he said that you get to about M in the programme <laughs> and you've pretty much filled up a lot of your slots. Mm. And hers is W. So she must have done... You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like a lot of banging on doors to, to get people to come down. Or just, just the word of mouth meant that people were like, well, I'm going to make time to go and see this. Because, yeah, yeah, like you said, it was a good show. Mm. I mean, how much do you think a title sells a show in Edinburgh for yeah, you? I think it seems, I think that's the show that seems to say, underline that a title is important. Um, but you've got to have a show. You know, someone was saying the other day, you know, the, the only way is... You've got to have a good. You've got to have a good show. You know, there's no point getting people in and then the show's rubbish, because there won't be any word. Of, you might get people in for the, it's the first few days, yeah. and it won't. You won't get any word of mouth going, or you won't get. Any, you know, you won't get any buzz going about it. But a title, a title can help get people through the door. Um, I think that I think, in her case, but there's no formula to it. I can't say what would work. You know, she had the word. She had Beyonce in it. Um, whether that means, you know put Lady Gaga in your title this year and you know maybe someone should get a spreadsheet out and see what other pop stars have been mentioned in show titles <laughs> and whether that you know whether that has had an effect it's just SEO isn't it yeah <laughs> uh, you know just yeah maybe it was just googling you know I don't know it's came to the top of lists well um, to, ch to change pace a little bit here um, mm. I've got a few questions about publishing a book because mm -hmm. um, you published uh, Beyond a Joke, mm -hmm. which is the book for Beyond the Joke, mm -hmm. UK, which is the darker side of comedy, mm -hmm. and it's basically about whether, or you're trying to work out whether comedy attracts people who are a bit strange, mm -hmm. or whether comedy takes normal people and mm -hmm. makes them come out the other end strange, mm -hmm. and you concluded both. Yeah, I, was gonna say, then, I can't yeah. remember the conclusion, yeah. but I was going to say, a bit of both, I think, is sitting on the fence, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you define as strange then? Like, what, what would you say is, um, do you just think it's people that have like a, a more of a on their own attitude, like kind of, because a lot of comedians, they do a lot of their own stuff. They, they want to be empowered to do their own careers and things and, and be, be their yeah. own entity. Or do you, I mean, because that is quote unquote strange in a world where everyone's looking for a job and yeah. stability yeah. and stuff. Or do you think it's something else? Yeah, it's that, but it's also comedians on the, somewhere on the autistic spectrum up, you know, up, you know, away from the norm on the autistic, not, you know, not so autistic that they can't leave the house, but somewhere away from the norm, away from the norm. Um, yeah, it's just something, I mean, who, oh, it's all these things that I can't quite remember, but someone, someone said the other day something about, because... Someone said the other day, because of his upbringing, he'd have either been a policeman or a stand-up comedian. And for whatever reasons, he decided to be a stand-up comedian. But he couldn't ever see himself doing any other, doing any other job. Um, do, you, do you think... Because obviously there's, there's people who are strange who are attracted to comedy. 
and there's people who were who were normal and comedy spat out the other end is a bit strange. Mm. Do you think one category is funnier than the other? No, no, I couldn't say that. But I mean, you know, but then you get someone like John Bishop, pretty normal, family man, held down a pretty stable job. I guess with him it was, a, you know, it's a slight, you know, he'd had that thing where he'd separated from his wife mm. and there's a sort of slight kind of midlife crisis type thing. But, but generally someone like John Bishop seems pretty well balanced and is as well balanced now as he was before he was a comedian. But they're the exceptions. I mean, that's the thing. It's not, it's not 100% every single comedian's going to have beyond the Asperger's spectrum or every single comedian's got mental health issues. But I, there are various studies and some contradict this, but I think, by and large, uh, academic research has, has borne out that there's something a bit odd about comedians. <laughs> okay. Um, your, your book, because you've also not just published that, you've published other books, biographies of comedians. I've written them. I haven't published them. Oh, okay. I've written them. It's, uh, okay. Does that make... Can you see the difference? Yes. Yeah. Publishers have published them. Yes. I wrote the words. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, was that you approaching them, like pitching for an idea again? Or is that uh, uh, them coming to you because they know you do a lot of comedy? It's of both. A bit of both. Um, with the comedy, um, most it's a publisher coming to me and saying, have I got an idea for a book? They haven't come to me with a specific idea, but on the other hand, I haven't gone to them out of the blue. They've come to me and said, you write about comedy, people buy books about comedy, have you got an idea for a book about comedy? So that's sort of how Beyond a Joke came about. Um, is that via a literary agent or do you work do you freelance in that I've got an agent yeah okay um, it's usually I think digressing slightly I think you have to have an agent I think an agent I think in publishing these days it's really, well it's, it's weird I mean maybe it's gone back the other day because as I think we slightly touched on before you could maybe do a book yourself like do it for, or do it for Unbound or something like that and if it does well there it could be picked up by a proper publisher whatever you want to call them but um, but yeah you need an agent you know so you could you know traditionally you've always needed an agent I think it's just otherwise books don't even get you know if you're sending synopses in or chapters in they, the chances of them even being read I think are, are a lot slimmer because an agent is like one it's been sifted already you know an agent has kind of gone this bloke can string a sentence together this bloke knows his subject it's already gone through a sort of filtering process to get to an agent. You, I mean, I've just, I've just done an interview with David Quantic, mm -hmm. uh, who was doing a book on Unbound. Mm. How, how, what's your, have you done stuff with them before? No, I never have. I've, all my book stuff has been pretty sort of traditional, old school publishing. Um, what was the last book I did? Yeah, the last book I did was a, a, a quick one. I did a book in that. The series called The Bluffer's Guide. Oh yeah. And again, they've done books about everything, and they again they knew they knew my work, and said we'd like to do a book about comedy. So could you do a Bluffer's Guide to comedy? So, so I did that for them. No, I've never done anything from Bound. I'd be. Because no. What are your thoughts on crowdfunding in general? Well, I think it's a. I've got nothing against it. I think it's a great idea. Do you have any book suggestions? Either. 
things you've read by comedians that you think are worth reading um, or books on writing or reviewing or learning how to string a show together for comedians specifically? No. <laughs> you have no books? <laughs> just, just your own, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I can't. Julian Hall knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, listen to the Julian Hall podcast. Um, <laughs> did you ask him that question? What yeah, he, he had a few. He oh. had a few good suggestions on things, and I, I put them out there. But I, I don't know. I just thought you might have some books on writing or, or putting together books or uh, shows or what. Or I'm totally self-taught. That's the trouble. Oh, no okay. one's ever, I've no one's ever taught me. No, I've never got anything out of a book. And um, I, mean, I did go to school. Yeah, no, 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 I know, I know what you're saying, because you, you did university and then, went, and then you were a garbage man for a bit. Yeah. And then you, that's what I got told. Anyway. Uh, no, no, I thought, I you, I thought you might have some books by comedians you might recommend that you enjoyed, because Julian recommended... Um, well, obviously, Stuart Lee's book. Which, oh, the perfect book. Um, cool. No, no. I was going to say. My, I owe it all to that book. No, that's a rubbish book, that one. Oh. No, <laughs> how I escaped my certain phase. Okay. Yeah, obviously, that's a very, that kind of almost... That kind of almost is a text textbook, isn't it? Uh, a textbook. Yeah. Is. But, I mean, I do read, I mean, I'm reading Ruby Wax's book about mental health at the moment. Okay. And that's interesting. Sane New World. Didn't even, didn't even know she had that book out. Or yeah, it's a paperback. I think it's been out a while. Okay. Um, but, I do... Yeah, I mean, I had all the usual bi- hardback, you know, biographies that came out, Kevin Bridges and uh, Omid Gillilis and uh, and they were, I mean, the thing is, when you read those hardbacks, those autobiographies, sometimes the stories. I mean, again, and that's why it's quite interesting doing the research mm. into my own book because they all kind of have some some sometimes they all. Quite a lot of them have sort of similar. Back- I mean, the, st- the narrative is all very similar, isn't it? Mm. You know, sort of. I had a bit of a funny childhood, and then I flunked out at this and that and the other. Then I went to a comedy club. And I thought this is for me, and then I started working at um, the Bearcat Club, and then I ended up on Live at the Apollo. They kind of. It's interesting to read them, but they're all kind of a bit, a bit. Sometimes can be a bit similar, but they give you an insight into. You know, comedians are very, com- you know, they're more, the thing is, sometimes they seem quite, they're, they are, they're complex, I think comedians are more complex than pop stars, because it's just such a vulnerable, you know, it's such a exposing thing to do, in a way, being, I don't think being a pop star is, being a pop singer is. Uh, say you go to a show, and the performer thinks the audience weren't right for it, they weren't getting it, or it was an off night, or just anything was in the way. Would you ever, I mean, if you're contractually obligated to, to review it, can they, can they tell you, can they ask you to opt out? Well, that's a difficult question, because... Because we don't know how fickle it can be sometimes, and you know, can I... You're basically saying to me, if a comedian has a bad gig, and I'm there reviewing it, mm. can they say to me, please don't review it? Yeah. Well, it's, no, pretty much impossible with the Evening Standard because we run our reviews the next morning and the space has already been like, page has been laid out in the newspaper with a little gap for my review to go. And they tell me how much space they've got and I write the review to fit the space. And I can't really write, sorry, no review today. The comedian didn't want to be reviewed. He had a migraine or something. 
Um, that's partly why, going back to what you were saying about reviewing previews, that's partly why I felt slightly uncomfortable doing that because sometimes previews were very badly attended in London. You know, you'd go to previews in July and the audience, and that would obviously be, you know, reflect on the comedian if, if there was a, not a great crowd in. Mm. So that was another reason why it was, it's not a great idea to review previews, even if the act wants them reviewed. Um, so if it's for the standard, pretty much no. If it's for my website, there's probably a little bit of wriggle room, but it's never come up in the sort of two years the website's been going. If, if you can't make it down to a show or a preview, and someone's done a recording of it for like a, you know, for, you know, to put on YouTube or maybe even for, even for a commercial thing, would you be willing to review that? Or do you, do, you, do you prefer to do it as a live thing? Well, I mean, I wouldn't review that and claim it was a live thing. No. I mean, who's the guy that just sent me, um, what's his, just sent me, a, someone's put a show on iTunes recently. Who is it? Finn Taylor. Is that what you're thinking of? No, yeah. no, but I know who he is. Yeah, yeah. and he's just, and someone, as Patrick Turpin, see I know all the names of all the young comedians, Patrick <laughs> Turpin just emailed me to say Finn Taylor's show is online, would you be interested in reading that? Like an album, but it's a download. And I might, but I thought you were saying if I couldn't get to a show, would I review watching it on YouTube yeah. or something? I mean, I wouldn't do that. Okay. I mean, I sort of had that, I had that thing with Josie Long last week, actually, that I... I was pushed for time and I'd seen the show in Edinburgh and I knew the show would be pretty much the same. And I kind of thought, in theory, I don't need to go to this show, but you can't, I couldn't do that. That's, you know, you have to sort of view every, it's a live performance. You have to go, you have to review the performance you see. And I couldn't just like rewrite a review of a show that I'd, performance that I'd seen six months ago. I had to go to the Soho Theatre and see it. If you could give one bit of advice, maybe one bit of advice in relation to Edinburgh and one bit of advice in relation to general getting reviewed or, or getting coverage to a few thousand comedians what would you be your oh god I can't really answer that question but I'll try <laughs> I thought I'd end it on like a really nice pinnacle point but you yeah. <laughs> sorry I don't know I mean it is the thing is you know we can talk about publicity PRs and we can talk about flyers and we can talk about should you get a manager and should you do the free fringe but uh, you know till the cows come home but I'm still sort of a bit trying to I try to be a bit romantic about these things and think that you know the, the bottom line is that you have to do a funny show you know sp- you know spend all your eff- make spend 90% of your effort on doing a funny show that's kind of got to be your goal rather than worrying about is my publicist doing a good job or have I got the right you know, have I got the right manager? I mean, just because you know, there's a, it's sort of a cat's swings and roundabouts thing. You know, people say, "Oh, management's like off the curb, make starts." You know, but off the curb, you know, who managed Michael McIntyre, Peter Kay, Lee Evans, blah blah blah. Off the car curb, don't pluck anyone off the street or even off the circuit and make them into a star. Now, people like Addison Cresswell, who, who died, you know, the Christmas before last, who founded Off the Curb, you know, he picked people because he could spot they had talent. And then when he made them a star, people would go, oh, yeah, they're only stars because they're a very high-powered agency. But the agency picks people who have got talent. So, you know, if, you're, if you've got talent and you do a good show, 
then you've got more chance of being picked up by off the curb. And if you want to do Live at the Apollo and sell loads of tickets, you've got more chance of, of achieving that. So it's just really work hard and do good shows. Because they won't ignore you. I mean, if you're, unless you're a terribly difficult prima donna, you know, off the curb won't ignore you. If they see you and you're any good, they'll be interested in signing you. Um, if that's the way you want your career to go. So it's really down to, you know, doing all these good things, getting noticed, doing competitions, getting noticed through doing competitions, whatever Tom Ward says. It might not be for Tom Ward, but um, I think you have to do them. It's just one of those stepping stones. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Okay, no, I hope I've answered some of your questions. No, you definitely have. Um, that was Bruce Desu. Honestly, had so much fun chatting with him. He is such a fountain of knowledge and he doesn't give himself enough credit for that he's always saying oh i don't know the answer i don't know what i don't know what to say to that but after asking after giving him a minute or so to think he is spot on and he and he really knows um what is going on in the mind of a reviewer obviously because he's done it for so many years and most of his friends are reviewers and it was interesting to talk to him because um, he's openly said before that he doesn't really talk to comedians that often because uh, in the nature of his job, he gets to the show, watches the show, sometimes watches two shows in a night uh, and then has to go home and write it up because there's overnight uh, deadlines for the London Evening Standard. So he doesn't even have time to go to the after parties. So I'm really humbled and happy that he was able to give us so much time and so much information. Um, I hope this helps you all out. If you're interested in more of these, I've got Sharon Lauter from the Metro, is the deputy features editor on the arts and uh, comedy side of that paper. She's coming on very shortly. We're just sorting out dates at the moment. So if you want to hear more from reviewers, that's going to be perfect. I've also contacted Broadway Baby Three Weeks and The Scotsman. Uh, I've got a friend who's put me in contact with Kate Kopstick, who I'm hoping will come on as well. Um, and yeah... So if you want more reviewers, subscribe, please share it, please keep telling people about it. Uh, like the page, because that's where I'm sourcing questions from, so uh, yeah, that's useful. If you want to find me, I'm on Facebook, my name's Simon Kane on there. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at ThisMadeMeCool, and I should see you in about a week. Thank you. Bye. 